with Civil War Talk Radio. If you're interested enough in the Civil War to be listening to this program, then you already know about North and South Magazine. Living in an era, as we do, when anyone with a computer and a map to Kinko's can self-publish his ravings of a lunatic, it's good to have a publication that can be counted on to present well-researched, provocative, interesting pieces from established authorities and rising stars in the world of Civil War history. We'll talk today with the man behind North and South Magazine, publisher Keith Poulter, on Civil War Talk Radio. Onboard computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to World Talk Radio. This is Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich. Today I'm talking with Keith Poulter, the publisher and founder of North and South Magazine. Keith, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine, Jerry. Thank you for inviting me on the program. Glad to have you. Keith, tell us uh, something about what you did in the years before you got to North and South Magazine. Well, going right back to the very beginning, I was born in 1940 uh, on the outskirts of London. Uh, The Germans were dropping bombs at the time, and this may well explain my lifelong interest in military history. Um, I left school when I was 16 because I, I... could not stand being just subordinated to authority. Again, that's a lifelong thing. Um, Worked for government communications headquarters uh, on signals intelligence. That's the British equivalent of the uh, National Security Agency. Then I taught uh, elementary school for a year. went to university, got a degree in political science, uh, joined the faculty, uh, then turned to teaching in community colleges uh, and then uh, launched a board wargaming company, 3W. Uh, and then in 1983, uh, immigrated to America uh, when board wargaming was virtually wiped out by computer gaming. I 
looked around for something more to do and launched North and South. Uh, that's uh, more than a few interesting things. That's quite a background. The, uh, let me pick on one incident there. The, the, national, the Signals Intelligence, National Security Agency-style work, uh, is there anything you can tell us about that without having to kill me afterward? <laughs> um, yes, I believe even after all these years, I'm subject to what the British call the Official Secrets Act. Um, I worked on um, uh, most of the uh, organization was concerned with, with um, monitoring, listening into, and analyzing uh, foreign broadcasts of one kind or another. Uh, the section I was in actually was looking at the security of British communications. And uh, so I, I did some code breaking and some analysis of uh, just how much the, uh, in particular the Air Force gave away uh, on its um, radio circuits to uh, anybody who was listening. Did that experience affect did you ever find that experience coming to mind when you read about the Civil War, about communications or signals? A little bit. Um, one of my interests is, uh, in particular, the Union Underground in Richmond during the Civil War. Uh, and there's some, uh, some elements of uh, messages being sent in code and, and uh, agents having um, secret names and so forth. Hmm. That, that's a particularly challenging subject for any historian because the people at the time are, are obviously trying to cover their tracks and it's hard enough to uncover what people were thinking when they were going ahead and leaving their records in the open. Right. There was a spy in Richmond um, whose code name was Quaker and I have tried for many years to find his identity without success. I, I've been as far as uh, uh, Quaker records in Ohio, for example, there was some suggestion at one point he might have uh, come from Ohio originally. Uh, but it, Quaker's identity r remains a mystery, despite the fact that a fellow called McNiven, uh, back in the 60s, I think, um, claimed that it was his, if I remember rightly, great-uncle. Um, but uh, I, I, I don't think that claim is valid. You said he. Are you certain of that? That it's uh, this was a man, not like Elizabeth. Uh, what was her name? Van Loo, I believe. Elizabeth Van Loo. Yeah. Uh, no, it was definitely a man. Um, and we have the only references in Civil War records to him. Uh, there's there's a reference in Butler's book, um, and there are two references I think in the in the official records, and that's it. And so we we don't know a lot about him. Yeah. So there's a project there for someone. Uh, perhaps. It might just be very frustrating, though. <laughs> you said you also published uh, board war games for a time, table uh, top games. Uh, we had Dave Powell, a game designer on the show, uh, some time back and talked about that, the, the use of games as tools for understanding history. Uh, regardless of how the, the market for games is doing, what with computers and so on, did you find games useful in understanding the past? Occasionally, although very often what you get out of a game is what the designer has put into it, and therefore you're not really getting something from the game itself. Um, but I remember one game on uh, the, over, uh, the um, Normandy campaign, Overlord campaign, uh, France 1944, where Patton's forces rushed for the German frontier across, across the map and then were slowed down, not because there were huge... German forces in front of them, but just 
because of logistics. And that, that certainly brought home the, the reality of what happened at that time. Well, just as, as you say, you, you get what the designer puts in, but you might say the same about a book, that you get what the author puts in. Uh, and sometimes games can be a dynamic form of, of, of teaching. That's true. In fact, that's how I got into board wargaming in the first instance. I was using teaching. Uh, I was using games in my teaching. I see. And and uh, the, the the games, the hobby of playing uh, playing out civil war battles and other military events and games does continue. Much of it, as you point out, has been moved to the computer now as a format. But there are some uh, luddites like myself who stare at a computer screen in the office all day. And if we're going to play a game, we'll we'll do it on paper. Right. Now, you went on from there. You said uh, 1983, you came to the United States and then launched North and South Magazine. At this point, uh, well, at that point, certainly, there was there, Civil War Times Illustrated was out there, uh, Blue and Gray. Uh, there, there were a whole series of Civil War magazines. Uh, why did you decide to, to join the fray? Well, this was 1997, late 1996, early 1997. Um, I was not happy with the popular magazines that existed at the time. Um, there, were, there were a series of things. One of them, uh, a couple of years before, I, in fact, I cancelled my subscription over it, um, had an article on the Vicksburg campaign in which the Union Corps were referred to as divisions throughout. Um, Civil War Times had an article about then, uh, again, about the Vicksburg campaign, which implied that the siege of Vicksburg lasted three months. Um, in fact, it was, I forget, either 47 or 49 days, one or the other, 47, I think. Um, also talked about it taking a very long time to move through an area known as the wilderness. It was pretty clear that the, 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 the name, the wilderness, wasn't really familiar to the author of the article, who, again, if I remember correctly, was an unemployed attorney. Um, in fact, it didn't take uh, uh, Grant's army that long to move through the wilderness even with the Army of Northern Virginia in the way um, and then worst of all the magazine Civil War yes. had an article on Grant's wartime drinking it was splashed all over the front cover and it said new evidence of Grant's wartime drinking first time in print well I looked at it and I walked across my office to my bookshelves and I got down volume 2 of the Grant papers and there it was, uh, published about 28 years before, word for word. And I don't suppose that was the first time it had been published. Um, and it was, in fact, an accusation made by a guy that Grant had just thrown in jail. Um, there is no evidence uh, that Grant was an alcoholic. Uh, there's no evidence, no viable evidence, that he was even a binge drinker. Uh, and and this this article distressed me. And I wrote to the magazine, Civil War, and I got a letter back from the managing editor which said, well, we had a very good response to the article. <laughs> and, and, and I thought, so what? What's that got to do with anything? And I decided, um, arrogantly enough, that I could publish something that would be better than that. And that's, that was the germ of the idea for North and South. So as opposed to being an, an obstacle, these other magazines are really an inspiration in a negative sense. <laughs> um, the existing ones, well, in, in a sense, yes. Um, my notion for North and South would be that it would be quite different. 
it would be a hybrid, somewhere in between an academic journal and a popular magazine. It would be like a journal in the sense that the um, the articles would be would be annotated so that people could consider the validity of what was being said and they'd know where the author got his information. Um, that the articles would be accurate, that the material would be fresh, uh, but it would be like a popular magazine in that the language used would would be intended for a general audience, uh, and the magazine would be you know a typical eight and a half by eleven format with lots of illustrations, and it would not have a circulation say of seven hundred like some of the uh, academic journals do, but would be sold in places like Barnes and Noble and Borders, and, and would have a, a, a much wider audience. Well, it seems you certainly met uh, uh, those targets. The <clears throat> the distinction between the popular magazine and the academic journal is is uh, you, you drew pretty well there. Really, the, a stark difference: the, the the academic journal with a 700 person circulation and no illustrations is, is read solely by a tiny. Uh, group of, of professionals in its field, and then on the other hand, you've got the popular magazine with no concern about the validity of the history as long as it gets a, a good response. So, so there's a void in between, and that's that's where North and South falls, as you see it. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Now, you, you asked me a moment ago, yes. Jerry, whether any of the other magazines were a an obstacle. Mm -hmm. um, there was a frightening time. Um, I had decided in, I think, December 1996 to, to launch this new magazine. Um, I checked out the logistics of it, the finances of it. Um, as a matter of fact, all the information I was given was wrong, um, but no matter. Um, and then in March of 1997, uh, Columbiad was launched. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, and Columbiad was intended essentially to reach the same upper end of the market as, as North and South, people who had a serious interest in uh, in Civil War history. Uh, but it was too late. I'd already committed myself to producing the magazine by then. So, But that was that, that was definitely disturbing. Uh, but of course, Columbia, as you know, um, disappeared after after a while. One, I, I apologize for not remembering which one it was. One of the authors of a Sherman biography, it was not John Marzalak, perhaps Kenneth, Lee Kenneth, uh, in his introduction, talks about how six Sherman biographies all showed up in the 1990s, and he said it was the academic equivalent of having a six-shooter emptied into your body, one after, round after another at short range, uh, watching these other books come out on the same thing you were about to do. So I imagine when you saw Columbia, that must have been something of the same feeling. It was something of the same feeling, yes. And Columbia, as I recall, uh, also aims for the, the, the the market between the two, as you say, but it looked more like a journal. It didn't have the illustrations that right. North and South has. Right. Is, is uh, either North and South or Columbia in its time, uh, were the articles refereed in any way, or did you as editor at North and South, uh, were you the gatekeeper for the articles? Yeah, I can't speak for Columbia, obviously, but mm -hmm. um, for North and South, uh, Yes, I, I referee them as editor, um, or rather, I did. Of course, as you know, I recently handed over the editorship to Terry Johnston, and we can we can get to that. Um, and after the first probably two and a half years, uh, Terry came on board as assistant editor, and we would then vet things together. Uh, and there were there were many submitted articles that, 
the unsolicited ones particularly, um, which you know we were able to say no, this is this is not something we want to publish. Um, equally, there were some very good articles from um, leading historians that we knew instantly we wanted to publish, and then there was a, a, a narrow band of you know ones which were on the borderline, which we weren't sure, and those would usually be sent out to some historian who was a specialist in that field, and we would ha we would ask his opinion. As a matter of fact virtually all, probably with only one or two exceptions, virtually all the ones that we considered borderline and sent out for a third opinion mm -hmm. um, were rejected. Yeah, that's, now that you tell that story, I recall, uh, I guess in the interest of full disclosure, I think that's how you and I first came in contact uh, when you sent me an article on uh, something dealing with uh, an incident in the career of the Army of the Ohio, which article, as I recall, uh, I'll, I'll speak very carefully, bore a striking, flattering resemblance to something I had already written. Oh, yes, I remember that now. And, and, and you did not publish it, uh, which I, I gave me an introduction to your integrity there, and uh, things, things worked out from there. But that, that is one of the distinctions between the popular magazines and the journals. The professional journals are indeed refereed. Items are, are routinely sent out to experts uh, to be, be vetted, to be confirmed that they should be published. And in, in taking that step that, you, that North and South does uh, for borderline questions, that certainly distinguishes it from its competition, I would say. Yes. Um, I can give you a, for instance. Sure. Um, an author submitted an article to Civil War Times uh, uh, and then submitted a very similar article to us. Um, and I looked at it, and it had reference to Beast Butler's regime in New Orleans. And it had uh, um, passages in which it was claimed that Butler had issued certain, certain orders to the, public, to, to the population of New Orleans. Um, I'm trying to think from, from memory here. Um, all, all firearms must be handed in. Uh, every citizen, man and woman, must uh, take an oath of allegiance. And there were a number of other things that Butler was supposed to have done. And I thought, this doesn't sound right. Um, and I went to the official records, to Butler's, to the, to the uh, original uh, notices that Butler had posted. Mm -hmm. And that isn't what he said. Um, he said somewhat similar things. Uh, he said if, if a citizen of New Orleans wants a government handout, uh, they have to s swear an oath of allegiance. Uh, he said former members of the Confederate Army should hand in their weapons, mm -hmm. but not all civilians. Um, Civil War Times published the author's article with all those claims unchanged, and they were all inaccurate. Um, and that, yeah, that, that does seem to me to sum up some of the difference. Well, it, it is uh, reassuring. There is so much published every month in every uh, corner of war history that, it, that it's, it's tough to keep up. And, and I certainly find North and South uh, a very entertaining and, and generally reliable place to go to see what new is being written. Well, you mentioned you've moved on from that publication. We'll come back in a minute on Civil War Talk Radio and talk more with the founder of North and South Magazine, Keith Poulter, and his future plans. <laughs> 